Hey, welcome to the Life Church Green Bay podcast. It's our mission to lead the way in bringing the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We are so glad that you're here. If this is your first time joining us, would you connect with us? We want to do life with you. And there are so many ways we can do that from wherever you are in the world. You can get connected with us and other Jesus people in one of our Facebook groups by joining us for an online service every Sunday or connecting with people through life groups and pocket churches. To learn how to get connected and find your pocket, please go to lifechurchgreenbay.com. Again, so glad you're here with us today. Here's this week's message. All right, open your Bibles to the first Psalm, Psalm chapter one. If you don't have a traditional Bible, but you wanna use one, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. You can either borrow that or you can keep it. It's our gift to you. Or you can take your smart device and open the version, also known as the Bible app. And all the notes and scriptures have already been uploaded. If you're watching us live on our online campus or you're in one of our services at the Brown County Correctional Facility, love you guys. So glad that you are with us and love you guys. So glad you're with us and with the fog and all that. Yeah, you guys go ahead, clap for yourselves then. There you go. Like, yay, me! <laughs> With all this weather, this weather has been so crazy. I mean, we, we had to, like, try to, you know, squint our eyes so that we could see on the way here. I mean, I've been here since earlier. Maybe it's cleared up. But anyway, so glad that you guys are here. And I, I get excited about all the series that we're going to come into because I love all of this. I love the process of it. I love the process of digging and dialing in to what stuff really means. But, like, this one I've been, like, really, really excited about and really spent a lot of time with other pastors in dialogue about it. And I think because uh, one of the most conflicting things for people in their relationship with Jesus is in their relationship with Scripture. Like we've been given this book and been told that it's the Word of God and that we're supposed to base our whole lives upon it. But so often when we read it, we get confused. We find it really difficult to understand. And because we misunderstand Scripture, we often misunderstand Jesus, which makes sense because the book says that He is the Word. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on, same chapter, and it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this book was meant to consume us, but for the book to consume us, we have got to consume it. And when we do consume it, it tells us that it'll teach us and encourage us by giving us hope. And so like, I, I love this idea. And I'm an old school Bible guy. Like I, I mean, I'm doing a uh, Bible study on the app, but I'm kind of still a traditional guy. I still love books. I love the feel of them. I love the texture of them. Like I, I love the smell, the smell of an old book where you grab this thing and you hold on to it and you feel like you're smelling either your grandma or a great book. Like you just, oh, mothballs. Like I just feel like this, there's, there's a connection for me when I have like an old school Bible in my hand because like I'm a reader. I love to read and there's so many beautiful types of literature that you can choose from. Everything from narrative to poetry to prose and the Bible certainly contains all of those forms and more. But as a whole, I think for so many people, the reason they get lost in translation is because of culture and context. So contextually, Scripture wasn't meant to be read the same way other types of literature are meant to be read. And anytime you don't read a type of literature in the way that it was meant to be read, it causes confusion. For example, Shakespeare, 
Some people love Shakespeare, other people loathe Shakespeare. But the people who love Shakespeare have come to this understanding that it is this play and, and there are people who will picture that in their mind. And so they'll take the like archaic kind of literature and they'll put it into context. And for them, it'll, it'll make it come alive. Another person that's like that is Edgar Allan Poe. And I actually like to read Poe and, and some people love him. And again, other people hate him. But when you understand that it's macabre, like it's, it's not depressing. It's just a form of literature. And he's like, as far as people who write macabre, there's nothing better out there to find than Poe. And so some people love him and some people hate him. And there's this similar sentiment when it comes to poetry. Anybody who reads poetry just by reciting it to them, they think it's drab. But anybody who starts reading it rhythmically, when you read it rhythmically, it comes alive. So scripture read from our context through the lens of our culture robs it of its richness. The Bible is what you call Jewish literature, and Jewish literature wasn't meant to be read the way our modern literature is meant to be read. Jewish literature was often void of details, certainly lacked a lot of the details that our modern readers have come to expect. So because of that lack of detail from our perspective, the stories are filled with ambiguity. And that ambiguity causes questions for so many people, at least it does for me, because I'm a total skeptic. And this whole series was born from my skepticism, from the fact that I have lots and lots of questions. And sometimes when I read this book, I don't get answers. I actually get more questions. Like, here's one of my questions. Was all of humanity really created through one man and one woman? And if it was one man and one woman, and that one man and that one woman had three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth, like we've been told, how is it that when Cain killed Abel and then fled, that he found his wife in a place other than Eden? I read that, and it causes a tension for me. It causes this problem, like, of, well, who is that woman then? And where did she come from? And people like me, skeptics, we take this little problem with Scripture, and we build a barrier saying, well, obviously it must not be literal, except... Scripture doesn't tell us that Adam and Eve gave birth to Cain and Abel first. It just tells us that they gave birth to them. And it doesn't tell us how old Cain or Abel were when Cain killed Abel. But for some reason, we've all come to assume that they were just teenagers. At least they are in all the pictures that we've seen. What we, what we do know is that Scripture tells us that Adam and Eve had another son. After that, his name was Seth, and he was given as a replacement for Abel. And when Seth was born, Adam was 130 years old. So what's to say that Cain and Abel weren't in their 50s or weren't in their 60s, which would be totally logical because people lived to be like eight, 900 years old back then. So 60 would be super young. How do we know that Cain and Abel weren't in their 50s or their 60s when Cain killed his brother? Which if that were the case, and if Cain and Abel weren't the first sons born to the first parents, there would have been plenty of time for multiple generations to have been born and spread across the land outside of Eden before Cain ever even went looking for a wife. In fact, Jewish tradition tells us that Adam had 33 sons and 23 daughters. Many Jewish theologians suggest that there could have been as many as 32,000 people already living on the earth at the time of that first murder. You go, dang, I just read that he killed somebody. And now you got all that from he just killed somebody? Here's another one. We don't even know that it took Eve nine months to deliver a baby or that she only had one baby at a time. How do we know that back then that it wasn't just like Mork and Mindy, that like they woke up and Jonathan Winters was there? You know what I'm saying? Like, was it like a full-blown thing? Here's what we do know. We do know that childbirth, it changed 
when sin happened, because God said, now you will struggle with childbirth. So how do we know that it wasn't like, how do we know that it's the way that it is now? Because we filter it through our context and through our culture. What we know is that scripture told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And what we know from fruit and how fruit multiplies is that fruit doesn't multiply one-to-one. A grape doesn't produce a grape. A grape produces a vineyard. When a fruit multiplies, it multiplies through its seed. So we don't know any of that stuff. We aren't given all those details because for the sake of the story, those details weren't needed. The story was left with some ambiguity because the point of scripture isn't always to point us to answers. Sometimes it's to point us to adventure, the adventure of seeking and finding. And scripture is interwoven, often referring to and circling back to itself. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent seduces Eve and causes her to sin. So God says the offspring of the woman will destroy the serpent after being stricken by him. And that word offspring is intentionally left ambiguous because it's a clue. And it's a clue for us to pay attention to genealogies, which even though they're interwoven throughout the biblical narrative, often referring back to themselves, we tend to skim them or skip over them. But you can trace the lineage of Eve all the way to King David and the royal line of his offspring, which in the New Testament includes Jesus as a servant king who will come. Then when you read the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, he connected that king as the suffering servant who would die on behalf of all his people. Then when you get to the end of the story in the book of Revelation, the writer writes this really weird, obscure thing that was a vision that God had given him about how this whole thing is gonna end. And the vision is of a woman and her offspring who will conquer the great serpent by giving up their lives. And when you've already read the beginning of the story with the offspring of Eve destroying the serpent after, after being stricken by him, you'll slap yourself on the head and go, ah! It's Jesus, the suffering servant king who gave his life to save us all. And suddenly you realize the whole time from the beginning of the story to the end, even through the parts that seem meaningless that we skimmed or skipped over, the whole thing was interwoven, referring to and circling back to itself. So for the next few weeks, I wanna take this book that so many people find really difficult to understand and teach you how to consume it so that it will consume you. And I want to start with a message that we're calling Seeking and Circling. Let's pray. God, we love you. We value you. Thank you, God, that you have called us to this great adventure, this seeking and this finding, that you said if we will seek you, we will find you. And so today I pray that we would seek, challenge my friends to go past the surface, to seek the core, to search for the answers so that God, when we leave this place, will be less like us and more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Seeking and circling. And so one of the reasons why I kind of want to start off with this whole idea is because one of the most sought after concepts in the church world is this idea of discipleship. And you'll, you'll take churches like ours where lots of people are starting their Jesus journey. Lots of people are receiving Jesus as their personal savior on a weekly basis. And then you'll talk to other pastors and they'll find out about how many people are getting saved, if you would, at your church. And then inevitably, the first thing they'll ask you is, well, how are you 
discipling them because discipleship is like the golden egg. It's, it's like the holy grail in the church world because we're all trying to figure out how to take people from point A to point B. And then in our pursuit of discipleship, we filtered it through our culture and our context of a teacher and a student where we seek out someone who knows more than we do about something and they teach us what they know. They become our teacher and we become their student. Like my friend, Alan, he knows a ton about audio systems. And so when I decided that I wanted to build a theater room in my house, he was the first person who I went to. And I asked him to teach me everything he knows. That's our format of education. And it's this very Greek concept of lecturing and listening where one person stands in the front and and conveys information while everyone else listens and tries to remember it so they can recite it when the test is given. And it is a style that has inevitably made its way into the church world, where someone like me stands on a stage and delivers a lecture or teaches a lesson, and then that lecture or that lesson becomes the thing that you base your life on. And so we call it this conversation, but the conversation always ends with scripture, where this guy says, do this, but don't do that, do that, but don't do this. And you think why? And then the guy like me says, because scripture says so. That's why. End of discussion. Which sometimes creates this pushback for people because it's the same rationale as when a parent tells their kid they're not supposed to do something. And if their kid ever asks them why, they respond with, because I said so. That's why. End of discussion. But most of the time when a parent says, because I said so, that's why, it's because they didn't even think about why until the minute that kid asked them why. I don't want you to do this. Why? Because. And sometimes preachers get up and they say, hey, don't do this. Why? Because. You smell like smoke. You're like, and you're just like, and you're like, is it in the book? No, it's not in the book. But it just, you know, we just... We just know that you're not supposed to do it. Why do you know that you're not supposed to do it? I don't know. Shut up. (laughs) Here's the crazy thing. The Jewish format of discipleship was totally different than that. Rather than the conversation just ending with Scripture, the conversation began with Scripture. And rather than the teacher standing at the front of the room and lecturing, he took the Scriptures and he set them in the center of the room so that everyone could talk around the Scriptures. It was this idea of circling the Scriptures And they spent their time of discussion in dialogue and debate. And they weren't afraid of debate because unlike our culture, debate wasn't intended to tear each other down. It was intended to build each other up. And so the conversation started with and ended with Scripture. And everyone would contribute to the conversation from their own context. Like one would look at it from the context of a farming family while another would look at it from the context of a fishing family. And then they would build the discussion layer upon layer, building on each other's ideas. And one guy would say it means this, and another guy would say it means that. And then a third guy would say, I think you're all wet. I think it doesn't mean any of that. And it would mean this. And then they would debate and they would argue and they would go back and forth and iron would sharpen iron. Or as the prophet Isaiah says, it was precept upon precept, line upon line. Here a little there a little. Then when all the disciples had contributed to the conversation, the teacher or the rabbi would then challenge them to dig deeper, to go past the surface, to see what the scripture was saying at its core. And when he would do that, he would do that by showing them how the whole thing was interwoven, referring to and circling back into itself. And that's what our life groups are going to be during this series. 
It's going to be a time for us to consider a concept from the scriptures, then circle around it with a conversation about what it means to you in your culture, from your context. And we're going to have these discussions, just this dialogue. And it's not anything to be intimidated by. There's no wrong answers. Like Sister Susie isn't going to be there with the pointer stick to rap you on the knuckles when you say something wrong. No, you're stupid. You know, like you just, oh, like people get so scared to share what it is that they feel inside. And so we're going to foster this culture of conversation. But what's different is we're going to have these discussions before the message. And typically in our sermon series groups, you'll hear the message and then you'll talk about what that message said to you. But instead, this time, you're going to hear the topic and then you're going to have the discussion. And I'm like really excited to hear what some of your insights are on some of these things because I think it's going to make maybe my sermon prep a little bit easier. So here's what we're going to talk about in this coming week in our groups. What did Jesus do for a living? Like before he was the Jesus miracle guy, what was his job? Because he lived three years doing the rabbi thing, but before that, he spent 30 years doing something else. What was that? What was his job? And so we're going to talk around this idea. What did he do? And people will say what it is they think that he did. And then we'll want to say, well, why do you think that? And then you'll say, like, why you think that? And then we'll say, well, what does that even mean to you, and, it, and it's just this conversation, just, just where, we're, where we're building each other up. And so I thought, let me give you an example for the next 15 or so minutes about what that would look like to me. Like, I'm a question asker. I ask lots of questions and generally ask those questions on paper. I ask them like these dialogues between, between God and I. And sometimes I come up with these questions that sometimes if you ask them to other like Jesus people, they go, <gasps> How dare you think that? Like, like for example, uh, what if I went into a group and I asked this, what happened in the book of Acts chapter two in the upper room? And then invariably there'd be people in that room and they would have some opinion. They'd have a thought about what that was. And, and then they would say they kind of what that was. And, and, and once they said it, uh, I would say, well, why? Why did that why did that happen? The thing that, that you think happened, why did that happen? And actually, I wonder, why do you even think that that happened? And the reason that I, I, I talk about that kind of question is because there's a whole doctrine that's been built on that experience. And so, like, maybe you're kind of new to the Bible thing, and there's some of us in here who we've, we've read the book of Acts, and we swore an allegiance to it when we got papers to do things. But maybe you're new to this thing, and you don't, you don't even know what uh, the book of Acts. I, I love that when people do that to me sometimes too, and they walk up to me and they say, you know what? I've been really mulling over Jeremiah 14 too. Like I have the whole thing memorized. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I got, you know, the, oh, let me, the, the, the 14, the, I have to carry the two. Like, and I'm just like, yeah, half the time I fake it till I make it. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh yeah, wow good stuff. Because it's all good stuff, right? It's called Christian lying. And so maybe you're in here and you don't even know like what happened. You didn't even know there was a book of Acts. Or when I say book of Acts, you think A-X-E, right? No, A-C-T-S. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. And in chapter two, we read a story about the Holy Spirit descending on the upper room. There's like an, uh, and it's not that there was a spiritual significance to the upper room. It's like the lower room was probably already full. 
So they, they went to the upper room because that one wasn't reserved. And so now we've like made this whole spiritual thing around the upper room. But when they were in the upper room, the people who were there had this encounter. And when they had this encounter, they spoke with tongues of fire. And I hear that and I go, why? And it's important that we ask why. Because I, like, I didn't get the opportunity when I came to Jesus to ask why. And so I had a whole doctrine downloaded into me before I had the opportunity to even look into it. And so it's important that we ask questions, particularly for me for this, because there's a whole doctrine that's been built on this idea that the purpose of that encounter was so that people could speak in tongues. But I wonder, was that the purpose of the encounter or was that the product of the encounter? Because some people have built a whole theory about this idea of people like needing to speak in other tongues to even get into heaven. And I go, why? I don't even want to speak in tongues when I get to heaven. I don't even want to talk when I get to heaven because I'm a man. I'll be out of words by the time I get there. I want to like communicate with each other by telepathy or by like pictures. So like I can already tell what you're thinking so that a bunch of dudes can just sit around and we can go. (laughs) See what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? We'll just make the whole thing a lot easier. So I wonder, why do they think that about that passage? And I wonder if it's just because someone else told them that. But I wonder, like, what would happen if we challenged each other to dig, to go past the surface and see what the scripture is saying at its core, to see how this whole thing is interwoven, referring to and circling back into itself, right? Let me just show you how it, like this, it circles around just in this one story about tongues and an upper room and the book of ACTS. In 1 Corinthians 15, a guy named Paul, some of you call him a saint, tells us that Jesus died... He rose from the dead. Then he appeared to his disciples and 500 other people. And the reason he appeared was so he could tell them that he was leaving, but he didn't want them to leave yet until he sent them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what he was saying to them is, I want you to circle up and I want you to surround yourself with expectation. I want you to dig in. And if you dig in, I will take you deeper. Then when you get to the book of Acts in the first chapter in the eighth verse, Luke writes that Jesus reveals what that gift is. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power. Power to be my witnesses in all of these places, even to the ends of the earth. Then we get to Acts chapter two. And when the gift of the Holy Spirit shows up, there were only 120 people circled up, surrounded with expectation, which means that 380 people didn't circle up. 380 people decided not to dig in and go deeper. In other words, the, the majority of the people who Jesus appeared to decided to surround themselves with something other than expectation. But we see in the first Psalm what we should be surrounding ourselves with. It says, blessed is the one who doesn't follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of the sinners or join in with the scoffers. And I want you to remember that one last little sentence there. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. And that word meditates comes from the Hebrew word mutter which means to keep it in your mouth, to recite it, repeat it over and over, to get a taste for it in your mouth, to repeat it until it goes from your mouth down into your heart. And that process of muttering 
was meant to be done over your lifetime. It was meant to take you your whole life to process these principles. And so these people weren't in a hurry to read it cover to cover. And there's nothing wrong with reading it to cover to cover. And there's nothing wrong with like reading the Bible in a year. Like I'm doing a reading plan through the YouVersion app right now that is reading the Bible in uh, one year. And a, a few years ago, I did a reading plan that was read the Bible in 90 days. Y'all, that's, that's robust. It took a lot of reading to read the whole Bible in 90 days. And what I can tell you is that that, like it went into my eyes, but it sure enough didn't go into my heart. So I read it cover to cover, but it didn't read me. And so this week I was talking to Pastor Dallas and he pointed out a scripture from the book of James that says we are supposed to be slow to speak and quick to listen. And how so many people think about that scripture in the context of their own conversations. But that scripture is actually talking about our interaction with scripture. And what if we adjusted our interaction with scripture? What if we just slowed our mouths and quickened our ears. So in the psalm, it says that we should delight ourselves in the law. But it isn't talking about the commandments, the law. It's talking about the word, the Torah. It's the book of the law, the first five books of our Bible, which contains the Ten Commandments, but is really the story of rebellion, a story of laws being given and laws being broken then more laws being given and more laws being broken. Then even more laws being given and even more laws being broken. And laws being given and laws being broken over and over so many times that at the conclusion of the Torah, Moses stands before the Jewish people and delivers a speech and tells them that he understands they're not going to follow all the laws. They are incapable. And they are incapable of following the laws because they have hardened hearts. To which we ask, how does Moses know that they have hardened hearts. And it's because he's seen a hardened heart before in the book of Exodus, in his interaction with Pharaoh, in his dealings with Pharaoh, where God hardened Pharaoh's heart over and over again, which maybe you wondered when you read it, why would God continually send Moses to Pharaoh to deliver a message that he was already hardening Pharaoh's heart toward? And maybe it seemed to you like he was purposely positioning Moses for failure. And you've wondered, has God positioned me purposely? For failure, But he wasn't positioning Moses for failure. He was preparing him for success. And he was doing that so that Moses would recognize a hardened heart when he saw it. And so that when he saw the Jewish people acting the way that they were, he would recognize that they were actually acting like Pharaoh, the one who had held them in captivity. And I wonder how many of you are acting like the one who held you in captivity so that even though you made a commitment to Jesus, you still continue to live your lives the way you did before you made the commitment at all. So Moses tells them that the only way that they're ever going to be able to enter into the land that God promised them was to leave the place that had held them in captivity. And the only way that they could leave the place that held them in captivity is to get new hearts. Then after the book of the law, there are 15 books that are called the prophets. And the prophets seem like really archaic, but all the prophets are are 15 books of people telling the story of the Torah from their perspective. And there's one theme that's interwoven throughout all 15 books of the prophets, and it is our need for new hearts. Like Ezekiel said, God will transform your hard heart to an obedient heart. Jeremiah said, the law won't feel like a duty once it's written deep in your heart. Isaiah the prophet said that a Messiah is coming, and he's coming to give us new hearts. And when that Messiah, Jesus, came, he came as a continuation of that story. 
And he was a continuation of that by teaching that the ugliest parts of humanity come from the hardened human heart. The hardened heart that makes it our default setting to be opposed to the law. And he came to solve that problem. But he didn't come to solve that problem by abolishing the law. He came to solve that problem by fulfilling the law. And he said, all the commands in the law and the prophets can be fulfilled with one thing, love, loving God and loving others, which seems easy. But then Jesus goes on and he shows the demands of love by saying, yes, you're correct. Not murdering is loving. But disrespect or resentment is also breaking the law because that's not loving either. And those things come from a hard heart. So Jesus took this idea of love, which seems so simple and so ambiguous, and he revealed how because of our hearts and the fact that they become hardened, we are in fact incapable of fulfilling even the most basic command of God, which is to love him and to love others. So Jesus puts himself at the center of the conversation when the word becomes flesh. And he does that to fulfill the law by loving others, both in life and in death. So Jesus died. He rose from the dead. Then he appeared to his disciples and 500 other people. And he appeared to them so that he could tell them that he was leaving, but he didn't want them to leave until he sent the gift of the Holy Spirit, a gift that he was sending them so they could receive power. Why? To be witnesses, witnesses to the end of the earth, witnesses to be able to do something that they were otherwise incapable of, fulfilling the law to love God and love other people. Then you get to the book of Acts chapter 2. And 120 people received that power when they received the Holy Spirit. And yes, they spoke in tongues. And so do I every day. But it wasn't the purpose of me coming to Jesus. It was the product of me coming to Jesus. And when they did speak in tongues, the people outside that upper room, including the other 380 people who decided not to dig in and go deeper, who decided not to surround themselves with expectation, made fun of them and joined in with the scoffers who all called them drunks. So Peter, your saint, he addressed the crowd and he spoke a message, not in anger, but in love. And it says, and when the people heard it, what? The message of love, what happened? They were cut to their hearts. And then they said, what shall we do? Y'all, 380 people who received a direct message from Jesus face to face were not changed by a face to face encounter, but they were changed by the power of the Holy Spirit that manifested himself, not just in tongues, but in love. So Acts chapter two, yes, it is about speaking in tongues, but it's about more than tongues of fire. It's about hearts of fire that become soft because we've stopped acting like the world that had previously held us in captivity. But friends, you will never see that until you dig. You'll never see that until you look at a scripture that says one thing and you go past the surface to see what that scripture is saying at its core until you see how this whole thing is interwoven. You will never see this until you seek and circle, until you keep this thing in your mouth long enough that it finally goes to your heart. You will never see stuff like this until you mutter. Will you close your eyes all across this place? Mutter 
Keep it in your mouth. Repeat it over and over and over so that you can hide it in your heart. Salvation is when Jesus goes past your consciousness and goes into your heart. That's why we say when you receive Jesus, you receive him into your heart. Salvation has become like this really vague thing to so many people, but it's so simple. Here's all salvation is. Acknowledging that what you're doing is wrong, but he has the ability to change it, and then surrendering yourself to that change. So this morning, I wonder if you can recognize that what you're doing is wrong. Only he has the ability to change it and that you're willing to submit yourself to that process. Today, we're going to give you opportunities to submit to that process. And here's how. Just a moment, I'm going to ask for people to do two things. First is with nobody looking around, I'm going to ask in just a moment for people to raise their hand and make eye contact with me. Once we've made eye contact, you can put your hands down and then everyone in here is going to repeat the same prayer after me. If you believe that heart in your heart, that that prayer in your heart, scripture says you will be saved. You begin a journey away from you towards Jesus. So if you're here today, you say, Sean, I am incapable of fulfilling this on my own. I believe that Jesus can change me, but I'd like him to. With nobody looking around, would you raise your hand and make eye contact with me? Thank you, 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 thanks, 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 thanks. Did I miss anybody? Thanks. Anybody? I'm going to ask everybody in here to repeat these after me. Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I'm sorry. I am not capable of changing myself. Please change me. Be my savior in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, would you do me a favor? Take the hello card, tear off the bottom part, fill out all the information and check the spot that's highlighted in yellow that says you're choosing to follow Jesus and either put it in the black buckets when they come around in a minute or take it out to the welcome center just so we can pray for you. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes again. Don't leave yet. We're not done. We are going to partake in the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion today. But I wonder if you're here today and you say like, I'm a Jesus guy or I'm a Jesus girl, but for you, maybe it's just kind of been a surface relationship. Maybe like you prayed the prayer, like maybe you're going to heaven, but, but you're like going to squeak in there like my grandma said, by the skin of your teeth. I want to get to heaven with a life well lived. I want to get to heaven empty, poured it all out on this spot. Maybe you're not doing that. So if you're here and you say, Sean, I'm a Jesus guy or I'm a Jesus girl, but I want to go past the surface and live a life of significance. If that's you, would you just raise your hand so that I can pray for you? Yeah. So God, for my friends in this place, that they love you and you love them. And that's not in question. God, today, they just want to go a little deeper. So today, would you challenge them? Would you give them the ability to do so? In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us this week. Did you know we have discussion questions for each message? You can download them and talk it over with your friends and family. Go to lifechurchgreenbay.com to download today.